year, hey, new year, new book. Um, we're in the book of Job tonight. New section, actually, interestingly, as we kind of, again, how God does all of this and kind of kicking off the new year with this. The, the Old Testament is broken up into four, I guess, major categories or sections, if you would. It's not chronological, as we discussed last, last book. You know, Esther isn't even in chronologically with the other books in history. It doesn't fit that way. That's not the way, uh, if you read Genesis through, through Revelation, it's not chronological. The Old Testament is put together in our, the way that we have it together, into four sections. The first, the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of the law, Moses wrote those. Then starting with Joshua through Esther, what we looked at, we finished Esther last time. Those are what's called the history books, if you would. And tonight, beginning with Job, we now are getting into what's called, often referred to as the books of poetry. Not poetry like you and I know it, like roses are red, violets are blue. Most poems rhyme, but these don't. Um, <laughs> We, we, we're beginning now with Job, and then with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the, the, the books of poetry, those are called, and then the books of, of the prophets, the major and minor prophets. So we begin now in, uh, as we get, get into this new section with the book of Job, and let's start out by reading the first few verses. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz, and we're not sure where that was, but whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his his each one of his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings, according to the number of them, the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have committed, have sinned or cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, as we begin the book of Job, there are some things that we don't know about Job. We don't specifically, when it comes to the book, we don't know who wrote the book. There's a lot of speculation about that. A whole lot of guesses from Job himself up to somebody else writing the last couple of verses when it speaks of his death. All the way up, some think Moses, some think some of the prophets, all of that type of thing. A lot of speculation about who wrote it. We don't know. We don't know when the book of Job was written, obviously, or when it took place. But there's a lot of evidence that points to the fact that the, the events that take place in the book of Job either are in the time frame of Abraham or even predate Abraham. Some of those things, you know, again, we can look at as we touch through that, go through it here. But one of them, we see here that seven sons and three daughters were born to him and, you know, again, we can, but they're adults. So he's probably at least, you know, 50, 60 years old, maybe a little bit older at when this happens. And we know at the end that he lives another 140 years after 
the, the events of the book of Job. So we're talking that he lived in excess probably of 200 years. And we know that time, ages were decreasing rapidly at that time, Abraham and so forth. So just based on how long he lived, that can tell us that he probably lived in the time of Abraham. Plus we see... It tells us that you know, all of his possessions that he had, it, it didn't, doesn't tell us how much money. It tells us how, much, how many sheep he had, how, you know, how much cattle and those. And back then in the time of Abraham and, and the, the patriarchal period, that's how they, they measured wealth. So there's some things that we can have speculation on, but there's, there's things that we don't know about Job. But there are some things that we see in the verses that we just read that we do know about Job. First of all, and I want to clear this up right away, Job was an actual man. He was not a mythical figure. I mentioned that we finished the historical books when we finished Esther. That doesn't mean that Job doesn't contain history. He's a historical figure. He's not a mythical figure. We actually see in Ezekiel chapter 14, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, beginning in verse 13, he says, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut it off from both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. So God confirming the actual historical validity of a man named Job. And not only that he was an actual man, but we see here, like Noah, he was a godly man. Look at how, how he is described here in verse 1. And we're going to see later that God uses these same words to describe him. God's own words. Notice it says that he was a man and he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That word blameless, the same Hebrew word that is used to describe Noah back in Genesis chapter 6. That he was blameless in his time. Now that does not mean that he is sinless. It means that if you would almost like that New Testament word that you, Paul uses it in Timothy and Titus to talk about how an elder should be within the church being above reproach so that no one can bring an accusation that would stick against him. Doesn't mean that he's sinless, but he means he's blameless. It's not that no one can bring accusation against him. Upright, he's walking straight on, but notice it says he is fearing God. Fearing God, he has an absolute respect, and we'll see this as we study through the book of Job, a respect of who God is a respect for what God says, a respect for, for what God does. Not, again, out of legalistic response, but, but out of loving reverence, like that of a child. Oswald Chambers said, the man that fears God fears nothing else, but the man that does not fear God fears everything else. <laughs> and we see that this, this man, this man Job, feared God. His desire was to please God. We, we've talked of that this weekend, that, that our desire as Christians should be to be well-pleasing to God. Not just avoiding things that displease God, but a desire to please God as God reveals himself to us. It's interesting as we look at this man's character and who he was, that this was, again, more than likely predating the law. This goes way before Moses and the law that was the written law that was given following the law that God wrote on his heart. 
And we see that, that he, as we move through this, he's a man of great integrity and a, he, a godly man. So we see he's an actual man. We see he's a godly man. We see that he's a family man. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him, but not just the number. I think it's interesting to note that all 10 kids got along. That, that's a pretty big deal, right? <laughs> and not just a big deal because it was mandated while they're at home. No, they're grown up and gone away and all 10 kids get together and celebrate. Most, most commentators believe that what they're talking about is when they get together on their day, they're talking about like they would all get together and celebrate like their birthdays, whatever that, you know, they'd get together and they'd celebrate those things together. All 10 of them getting together and, and celebrating and, and, and continuing to do life together afterwards. And that, that's a great reflection on some godly parents that loved them, that raised them right, that poured into them. And, and again, to have a family that size, that was again a, a sign that, that honoring God. But also notice a wealthy man. If we just look at this, the, his possessions, 7,000 sheep. What do we know about sheep that needs to be done to a sheep? <laughs> you you got to take care of it. You got to shear those sheep, 7,000 of them. I'm assuming he's got a few guys in charge of that. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. A yoke has at least a pair. So he's got at least 1,000 oxen. And we're going to see in just a moment that, that those were taken away while they were plowing the fields. Can you imagine a thousand oxen the size of the fields that he must have had that were being plowed with this? And then also the, the female donkeys, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. I would say so to take care of all of that, all of that stuff. An extremely wealthy man. Now, it's important when we, when we see this to understand because money is not the root of all evil. The Bible says it's the love of it. Does, does money and possessions and the desire for that, does that control you or do you control it? I've heard it said that, that, that money is a great servant, but it's a wicked master. And we see from this, and we can, let's just jump ahead there really quick to chapter uh, 29 of Job. We see that Job was a godly man in the way that he handled his finances. Again, God clearly blesses him. In 29 now, Job, again, speaking of himself, and we're going to see this as we move through the book as he's giving some defense to his friends as they bring accusation to him, and we'll see that as we move through. But look at chapter 29, beginning, beginning in verse 12. The first part kind of lays it out as to how he was respected greatly in the community. But verse 12 says, Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. Again, this is before the law when it was mandated by God to the children of Israel to take care of widows and orphans. Look, he, said, you know, he knew it because God laid it on his heart to take care of the poor, those that were in need. He, he, he was generous with them and the orphan who, who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I didn't know. 
I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. He, he saw when others were taking advantage of the less fortunate, and he got, in, he got involved. He, he, he used what God blessed him with to bless others. And so we see, again, not a man that was sinfully rich, somebody who used his blessings to be a blessing to others. So we see this, this great man that God has, is, is blessing and pouring into, and yet he is willing to and ready to give back and to use what God blesses him with. Notice, again, as we speak of him as a family man, this verse five really, really convicts me as a parent. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, when it, kind of, it, when it would move on through and they'd do their things, Job would, set, would send and consecrate them. Notice, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Thus Job did continually. Now what this is not saying is that they were just party animals and just going crazy and Job said, well, I got to cover that. Notice it says, in case they have. I believe these were godly young men and women, his sons and daughters, but he is still interceding for them. He is still getting up early and interceding for his children. Notice actively, willingly, sacrificially burnt offerings weren't something that it took a couple of minutes in the morning to check off your list and move on, especially 10 of them. And continually, thus he did continually interceding for his kids. So we see that he was a loving man as well. Well, our scene shifts from, from earth to kind of taking a look at, at Job here, our scene shifts up to heaven. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you noticed him? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Notice again, God sees that, recognizes that. Then Satan answered and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. We see here now and again, we're introduced. Notice it says the sons of, sons of God. And that is a reference used two other times, once in Genesis and once later on in the book of Job. Again, when we see that, that speaking of angelic creatures. Now, Angelic creatures note both angels that serve God and those that rebelled against God. Two-thirds, we know from, from other places in Scripture, two-thirds of the angels remained faithful and loyal to God, but a third of them fell away and followed Satan in his rebellion against God. And so we see that. And there's a lot of things there's a lot of mystery still in our understanding in that whole spiritual realm. There's things that we don't know 
about Satan, about the enemy of our souls, about the demonic forces. But we see from here in our, in our scripture here, there's a lot of things that we do know about him. First of all, that he still has access to God, that he is there speaking to God. And we know that in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that he's not only accusing Job as he was there, but that's kind of his full-time deal, is accusing the brethren. It says in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, and this is speaking of the future when this will take place. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels, Michael the archangel, and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. The dragon, speaking of Satan, and we know that as we read through Revelation, and his angels. Now, there's a war in heaven. That's coming. That's a pay-per-view I'd pay for <laughs> to see that one. It's not going to be a long fight, but I'd still love to see it. For verse 8 says, and they were not strong enough. And they were, there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. This event is coming. Job tells us that now they, they still come. And we're going to see what, take, what transpires. You know, again, he brings this accusation. God allows him to do certain things, restrict certain things. We'll get into that more in a minute. But there's coming a day when they will have no more access. They will be cast out forever and no more. And, that's, and, and we'll be there. So great. That'll be awesome. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, who was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren, against Satan, has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even when faced with death. Make no mistake about it. We see it here. Tells us that, that he's roaming around. He's taking notes. He's checking out things. And it says that he goes before God and he brings accusations. And it tells us here in Revelation that he's the accuser of the brethren. Brethren, he's before the Father day and night bringing accusation against us. And that would sound horrible, except we know that though he's before the Father, as the accuser, we have our advocate at the right hand of the Father, who lives to make intercession for us. The accusations that come against us because of the blood of the Lamb, our, our advocate says, that's paid for. That's already atoned for. Every accusation for us as born-again believers. But back to our, our story as it unfolds for us here. We see this, we know about, about Satan, that he has this access. But there's some certain things about, about our enemy that we need to understand. Because he gets way too much credit. I, the, I think, what was it, Flip Wilson that made that statement famous? The devil made me do it, right? Well, he gets way too much credit. The devil behind every bush, you know, all this other kind of stuff. We see here, where have you been? Roaming around the earth, walking around it. Guys, Satan is not omnipresent. He is restricted to one place at a time. And I don't want to offend anybody in here, 
but he's got way bigger issues, way bigger people to deal with than you and me. <laughs> Sometimes we think, man, the devil is just all over me. Satan is, no, no, probably not. Yes, demonic forces, absolutely. Powerful demonic forces, absolutely. But notice, he's also not omniscient. He brings some things and he says some things, but those are things that he discovers. He's walking around discovering. He's learned a lot over the years, but he's not omniscient. And he is powerful. We're going to see that in, in a few verses after this comes. He is powerful, but he's not all powerful. He needs permission from God in order to do anything. It's... That is a very comforting thing. Though we see that God allows things to happen and to come into our lives, nothing takes place without his permission. The enemy can't do anything to you and I without God's permission. Demonic forces cannot do anything to you and I without God's permission. We see even in, in, the, in the gospel accounts that a whole... They called, so many demons were inside this one man. They called themselves legion because there were so many of them. They couldn't even go into a herd of pigs without Jesus' permission. They said, send us into the pigs. Send us into the pigs. And he said, go. They had to get Jesus' permission in order to go into the pigs. You'll remember, too, the conversation that, that Peter had when he came up and Jesus was having with Peter. And Jesus said to Peter, Satan, Peter, has demanded to sift you like wheat. See, Satan, Satan was coming after Peter. He knew that he was, he was the guy. He knew that, that he was the main one of the 12. He was the, the leader. He was there. And Jesus knew. And he says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And we'd all love that Jesus would have said, no way, no way, Jose, keep your hands off of my man, Pete. But he said, when you have returned. He was granted permission to sift Peter like wheat. But when you come back, strengthen your brothers. But he's not all powerful. God Almighty is all powerful. And notice he said, you've made a hedge around him. You, you've put this hedge. You've protected him. I can't get through that. Notice too, he says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Again, not true. It's not true about Job. We're going to see that as this takes place. As a matter of fact, you can look real quickly right, at, right ahead now at the end of verse 22 because some bad stuff's going to happen in case you haven't read ahead already in the chapter we're in. But verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser of God too. We see all the way back into Genesis chapter three. When he brings this accusation against God to, to Eve saying, did God really say that you couldn't eat that? Did he really mean that? You know, the bottom line with this, I'm paraphrasing, is God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you. Do you know what the truth is? If you eat this, you're going to be like God. But God doesn't want you to be like that. He's the accuser of God, and he's accusing God here too. The only reason that Job loves you, and the only reason he worships you, and the only reason he stays faithful to you is because you bless him like crazy. Take away your hand of blessing, and let's see what happens. He'll curse you to your face. I, I don't know about you, but it says there's this conversation going on up in heaven. And then 
the Lord said to Satan, have you, have you considered my friend or my, have you considered my servant, my servant Job? Have you recognized him? Have you noticed him? I'd be like, hey, hey, let's leave me out of this conversation, right? <laughs> we all want God. We all want God to notice what we're doing. We all want, right? Want, but when it comes to that conversation, hey, that, let's pass over that. But God's proud of his man, Job. There's no one like him. Again, notice God sees. He's blameless. He's not sinless. But again, he sees that, that Job has made it his life's purpose, his life's mission to be pleasing to God, to honor God. Upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. That's God's perspective. God sees the heart. We're going to see his, even his best friends misinterpret who he is as we get into chapters 3 and following. But again, we'd all love to see, you know, when, when Satan brings this accusation that the Lord would say, there's no way you're going to touch my man, Job. After, after the way he's lived his life, no way am I going to remove that hedge. But look what it says. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. He gives permission for Satan to bring his hand against him. But there's a limit to it. He says, don't, you can, you can take away all of his stuff. You just can't touch him. There's a limit to what he does. Now, as we move into the, the next section, I think it's important because just imagine Job as things are going on in his life. Everything seems to be going, going so well. But when it comes to when it comes to our situations, our lives, our day-to-day experiences, there's a lot of things that we do know. There's a lot of things that we, that we can grab a hold of, but there's also a lot of things that we don't know. There's a lot of things that Job does not know. He has no idea what's going on in verses 6 through 12 as he's going on in his regular day. No idea that that is taking place. And we don't know what is taking place behind the scenes, if you would. We don't have any idea what God's, we, I shouldn't say that. We know what his ultimate plan and purpose for us is as Christians, right? To be conformed to the image of Christ, to be glorified. But we don't know the, the, the process, I guess I would say, that God's going to use to get us there. His overarching plan in, in, in history. We don't know what the next moment holds. I've heard that said, and I'm sure you have, and it's a great, great one to keep in your mind. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. But the, the reality is, we don't know what the next moment holds holds and it's recorded the story is recorded in three of the gospels that there was there's a man named Jarius. he was a synagogue official in Capernaum and life was going great for for Jarius. I mean he had everything he had position he was he was the leader of the synagogue there in Capernaum pretty large city he had he had Wealth, he had prestige, he had everything. He had a great family, including a daughter that he absolutely loved. Everything going great for Jarius, but he doesn't know what the next moment holds and he finds out that his daughter is dying. And he comes to Jesus. 
We see that, that Jesus then and the, the rest of the story eventually he heals her, but he didn't know what the next moment held. Everything was going great, and we're gonna see everything's going great with Job, but we don't know what the next moment holds. In that same story with Jarius, there's, there's a woman that, that nobody knows. Everybody knows Jarius, including the author of the gospel. They, they knew his name. This woman is unnamed. It tells us that she's had a, a bleeding issue for, for years. And nobody knows her name. Nobody wants anything to do with her. She's considered unclean. It tells us that she's lost everything. She's without hope, absolutely, totally. I mean, nowhere else to turn except the last place she goes to is to Jesus. And as she says, if I can just only touch him and reaches out and touches the corner of her garment, not knowing what the next moment held for her, she's healed completely. Because we don't know what the next moment holds. It might be great. It might be glorious. It might be tragic. And we see that's, all of us have had bad days before, but I doubt any of us can compare with what takes place in this day in Job's life. As we begin in verse 13, it says, now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and the consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. In one day, in the period of how long did that take me to read that? He gets the news that, that all of his, his possessions as far as the oxen and, and that were taken. And I would imagine that, that Job could probably care less about that considering what comes out. All of the servants that were there were killed. And knowing, knowing Job's character, can you, I, I believe that he, he treated them like family. He loved them, though they were his servants, took care how that must have. And while his heart is wretched over that and breaking the news then comes that that the, the the next tragedy comes that the fire from from heaven comes down lightning no doubt burned up the sheep the servants consumed with them as well while there's still that happening the camels taken away and then the ultimate can you imagine all 10 of your children killed in a moment It's hard, it, it, honestly, it's hard. What do you do with that? How do you process that? That's, that's off the charts. A couple of, couple of things just 
real quickly with this before we move on. The, it says the fire of God fell from heaven. Obviously, this servant, again, doesn't know what's happening behind the scenes because God didn't send that. This wind that came up and, and knocked it over, God didn't send that. And I'll, I'll tell you, again, that tells me that our enemy is powerful. He can do those things. He can't overrule God. That's the great part. Though he's powerful, our God is all powerful. When we look at the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal up on top of Mount Carmel, he brings this challenge to them. He says that, that we'll, we'll each make a sacrifice. We'll each put a sacrifice on, on top of the altar, but we are not allowed to touch it with fire. And then we'll pray to our gods, and whichever God answers with fire from heaven, that's the true and living God. And whoever else, whoever loses that bet gets killed. Let me ask you, are you agreeing to that if you don't know that your God is going to answer with fire from heaven? That tells me they've seen their little G God, their demonic minions that they conjure up, have power to do those things. We see that, don't we? And even when we go back to Egypt, when Moses goes and, and plague after plague that he, that he does, the Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate. Every time making matters worse, by the way, but that's beside the point. Until it got to a certain point when they said, man, this, this is even out of our league. We see, though, God is the one that is all-powerful, even though they may have had the power to do that. When it came right down to the competition, God said, no, not today. Because no matter what the prophets of Baal were doing and trying all of their things that always seemed to work before, it's not working today. We see that Jesus, when he sent the disciples to the other side and he's asleep in the boat, right? And he get the storms comes and the waves are crashing over the boat. It tells us that Jesus gets up and he says, be still to the storm. And we don't know if that storm was conjured. I believe that was a storm knowing that Jesus is heading over there and legions on the other side. We just talked about him. Jesus is going to heal him. The enemy wants to do everything he can to keep Jesus from getting to the other shore. Don't know that for sure. Could be him, could be the Lord, could be all of that. But anyway, Jesus had control over the, over the storm, ultimate power. But back to... These verses, 13 through 19, what do we do with this? And what can we take away ourselves personally for the difficulties and trials that we face in our lives? What I will tell you doesn't work, so don't use this when you're talking to somebody and trying to counsel them and work through a difficulty in their lives, is that saying that's, well, you know what? No matter how bad you have it, somebody else has it worse. Anybody ever tell you that? Has that ever helped? No. I mean, it's a reality. I mean, I could say, yeah, okay, yeah, I know you're going through this real tough time, but just think of Job. Not going to help. What do we... What do we do with this? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> I think the only place to go is, is, don't come to me. Let's go to the word of God and see if we can't 
find something that can help us in our current times. Because no doubt there's, there's people in this room right now dealing with tragedy, dealing with suffering, dealing with real issues in their lives. And if you're not, that means one of two things or both. You either just came out of a situation like that or you're about to go into one. So every one of us can glean from this. So would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. A man who no doubt knew, knew a lot about suffering, especially at this time in his life when he's writing this. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, I want to start off with here, I think that this is an important word that we all, we all get here. I'm going to teach you a little Greek. Periosmos. Go ahead and say that. Periosmos. Periosmos. It means a test, a trial, and it can also mean a temptation. It's translated all three ways. Periosmos. That word that we just looked at for your testing is that Greek word, periosmos. And what Peter is saying is, don't be, don't be dumbfounded when periosmos comes. The enemy loves to use difficulties to get us to doubt God's love and his power. Don't be deceived. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be deluded or, or, even, or discouraged. There's a, there's a reason. Notice he said that there's some strange thing. Don't be, don't be surprised. Notice too, though, beloved. That's how the verse starts. Beloved, agape tas. Agape is the root there. No doubt Peter loving these folks, but Underlying the most important love he's speaking of there is God's love towards them. And again, severe suffering and trials can cause us to doubt God's love. And that's, that's what the enemy wants to do. But stay here. I'm just going to jump over there real quick. Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Again, the enemy wants to convince us, and even sometimes well-meaning Christians can get us to think that way. You're being dealt with this way because you really ticked God off. If you're being disciplined, again, it's because God loves you, but Job wasn't being disciplined, right? I mean, it wasn't because of that. And we're going to see that his, his friends try to bring that and all that other kind of stuff. But bottom line, 
it, that, that's, not, that's not necessarily the case, and we shouldn't be surprised as it comes. We know, again, God is in control. First, First Corinthians 10, 13. Most of you maybe could even recite it along with me without looking it up. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way to escape so that you will be able to endure it. Guess what word temptation is there? Periosmos. Same word. Temptation. Trial. Paul's not just speaking of temptation that comes to us from, from the world, the flesh, the enemy. God will not allow any trial to come into your life. That he will not be with you and provide a way through it. That's a promise. God is in control. There's, there's no oops. Didn't see that coming. God is in control. And we know from Romans 8.28 again that God will work all things together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose as well. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Don't, don't be surprised, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, notice this, keep on rejoicing so that a reason also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Don't, don't be surprised. Keep on rejoicing. Again, verse that we could probably all quote together because it's, been, it's brought up when we're facing difficulties and trials. James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various periosmos, trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Trials, temptations, difficulties, they come. Jesus used the illustration in, in the Gospel of John. He uses the, the illustration the, of, of childbirth. Is there anybody pregnant? Expecting? No? Anybody remember that whole thing, right? <laughs> Morning sickness, weight gain, trouble standing, getting out of a chair. I used to think that was kind of funny, but I'd, I'd, then I'd help her up. I would. I'd just get labor pains. But Jesus speaks of that, and it's all true, and all of, that, all of that is there. But Jesus said, going through all of that difficulty, all of that trial, everything was all made worth it when? When the baby's put in your arms, right? All of it, worth it, way worth it. If it wasn't worth it, we'd have a whole lot more one-child families. But it's worth it. And Jesus uses that illustration to speak of it. And notice what Peter tells us in the text here. Suffering allows us to experience glory. To experience joy, if you would, that wouldn't be available other ways. The joy of holding your own child in your arms 
can't be experienced any other way. The heartache, the pain, the difficulty, it improves, it, it produces, James tells us, endurance resulting in joy. Verse 13, Peter tells us that, that, that there's a day coming, the revelation of his glory. And again, we, we know that, right? We can, we can point to that and we say that. And that's something that we can draw comfort from knowing that this is temporary. That is coming. And it's an eternal glory, by the way. And it's spoken, it's spoken directly that we know it's, it's going on forever. But notice for right now, verse 14 speaks of right now. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Not will be, you are, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, not will rest on you, but now rests on you. Trials, the difficulties, periosmos, gives us the opportunity to tap into the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Major trials tends to do something wonderful, doesn't it? It brings us to the end of ourself. The, the, the little difficulties, the little trials, we, we have a tendency in our pride, I got this, I'm good, I can handle this. No, the big ones get us to the end of ourself. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who get to the end of themselves. Blessed are those who who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But Paul tells us, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a prosperity gospel verse. That's a Job chapter one verse. I can go through all things. That's what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us. I can go through anything. Because Christ strengthens me. Because it's him. Paul writes in the, the New King James translation of, of Acts 20, 24. It says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. So that, so that, because I may finish my race with joy. Paul, all of the trials and difficulties that Paul went through. says, so I can finish my race with joy. One last quote here Warren Wearsby says our values determine our evaluations if we value comfort more than character then trials will upset us if we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual we will not be able to count it all joy if we live only for the present and forget about the future the trials will make us bitter not better first Peter jump down with me to verse 19 Therefore, those also who suffer, note, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Suffer, and I, I don't think any of us want to know, we, we all want to know the will of God, right? <laughs> the will of God for my life, yeah, I want to know. And we, we're excited to know that his will is that we're saved and that we're sanctified, you know, and that we're spirit-filled. We love all of those, but we don't, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. The will of God for me is that I suffer? But notice, when we suffer according to the will of God, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. A faithful creator. It's the only time that, that that word pairing is used in the New Testament. A faithful creator who personally, intimately, 
created you. It's like the psalmist tells us before he knew every one of our days before there was one of them. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He pre-programmed us to get through whatever life brings, whatever he allows to bring. Why did, you know, again, Job, these things happen to Job. We see through scripture, there's a, there's a lot of things that we can point to that, that the angels learn from that and all of this stuff. And here we are studying the life of Job all these years later. God's purpose is way beyond what we can, but God pre-programmed Job, a faithful creator and a faithful God to bring him through all of this. We're going to see, spoiler alert, you read the end of the, end of the, get to the end of the end of the book of Job, God restores, God, God replenishes. God never left Job, a faithful creator in doing what is right. We go a couple of minutes. Bear with me. Jump down to verse six of chapter five. First Peter still. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he, who? He may exalt you at the proper time. When? At the proper time. When is that? Guess who knows? He knows. <laughs> Casting all your anxiety on him. Note, because he cares for you. And trusting our souls, a faithful creator, in doing what is right, because he cares for you, casting all our anxiety, throwing everything on him. Verse eight, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, roaming around the earth, just like he did back then, still doing the same thing, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren around the world. We can't get into this idea that we're all alone in it, but we're not. Notice verse 10, here we go. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. For a little while, his eternal glory. A little while are suffering his eternal glory forever. This momentary light affliction that we're facing is not compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Now, we come back to this, and again, how do we, how do we process all of this? Again, back in what happened to Job. Again, there are things that we just can't understand. The Bible tells us, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, that God's ways are higher than ours. His thoughts, higher than ours. How, how, how much higher? <laughs> as far as the heavens are above the earth. There's things that we're, we're not going to understand about this. I mean, again, we, we come back to this, and the one that I know we're all choking on, the one that we're all having a difficulty with, is all 10 of his kids dying. Now, one thing that we have to remember is all 10 of them we're going to eventually die. Every one of us has a, has a birth date and an expiration date here, unless the Lord takes us. And God knows those days. And God doesn't do anything again without a purpose. And we don't, we don't understand all of that. I can tell you, and I believe it, I believe it as, 
as much as I'm sitting here that, God, that Job is reunited with his 10 children. And none of, us were, none of them are up there saying, you know what? This was a real ripoff. Because the eternal glory, the momentary affliction, eternal glory. But just as we've kind of seen a, a theme through chapter one, the things that we didn't know about Job, the things we do know about Job, the things we didn't know about Satan, the things we do know about Satan, our circumstances, situation, what we do, there's things we don't know about God. He's that great. He's that big. But there are things that we do know about God. That he is only good. He is incapable of doing evil. It's not that he chooses not to be evil or do things that are evil. He can't. His very nature, he can't. He's only good. He's all-powerful. He is in control. He's a sovereign God. He's all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Nothing happens in our lives outside. He didn't, it's, it's not like, oh, man, sorry, I was busy over here. He's, he, he's everywhere. And he loves you. His love that was demonstrated that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. When you and I wanted nothing to do with him, he chose to give his very life in exchange for us. So when you're facing things that you don't know, <laughs> you turn to the things that you do. And you lean on those things. And we see from Job another great thing as we finish up chapter one. Notice what it tells us in verse 20. Then Job arose and he tore his clothes and he shaved his head. That's a sign of, of, of intense mourning. That's an outward expression of, of a, insides that are absolutely ripped to shreds. And don't let anybody ever tell you that it's, it's not okay to cry and that it's not okay to mourn and it's not okay. You know, no, Jesus wept, tells us, you know, again, that as Christians, we mourn, we mourn differently than the world does because we have hope. But we see this, this outward expression, but notice what it says next. And he fell to the ground and he worshiped. He didn't go to the bar and get drunk. He didn't, he didn't curse God. He didn't, he didn't, all of this. Notice he fell to the ground and he worshiped. That is an act of will. That is a choice that he made. And notice why, because of the God he knows. He said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked, I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's no way that he could process everything that took place. You and I are struggling processing it. and It didn't happen to us. But he said, you know what? I don't know what is going on. Somebody even told me that fire from heaven came down and did this. But I, God is, God is the one. He's the creator. Everything I have came from his hand. He wants to take it back. That's his prerogative. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, verse 22, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And remember, that's what the enemy's plan was from the beginning. Take all this stuff away, he's going to curse you right to your face. 
But see, it wasn't about that for Job. There's something about this. And I, I hope that we can take this away again. <laughs> Things are going to happen in our life that we don't understand. You might be in the middle of a situation right now that you just don't understand. It does not make sense. No matter how much you, no matter how much you try to process it, no matter how much, who you talk to, no matter what it is, it's just not making sense. Here's my suggestion. Fall down and worship. Remember how good God is. And all that he has done for you. Start making a list of those things. And just bringing it before the Lord. And you may never understand, fully understand why it is you're going through all of this on this side of glory. But I can tell you one day you'll look back and you'll go, got it. And it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've preserved it. The story of a man that lived so many years ago, but a man who who was blameless, above reproach, who was a man of integrity, who was a man who feared you, who respected you, who loved you, and desired to live a life and, and actively pursued a life that was well-pleasing to you. And in spite of all of that, tragedy came to his life. And Lord, just like Job, we don't understand the things that are going on behind the scenes. We can't understand all of those things. We don't, we don't know the processes and plans that you have but we do know your ultimate purpose for us, your ultimate plan for us is that we would be conformed to the image of our king. So Lord, as difficult as it is to pray, Lord, have your way. We trust you. You are our faithful creator. We trust that you have not only pre-wired us for whatever it is that you're going to call us to walk through, but you promised you're going to walk through it with us. Lord, I pray right now for anyone here who's going through an exceptionally difficult time. Lord, I pray that you bring them comfort. I pray that you bring alongside others to comfort them. Lord, we trust you and we thank you. We thank you and we worship you because because you are so much greater than we are, because your thoughts and your ways are so, much, so far beyond us, we worship you, we thank you, and we praise you. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we, Lord, Lord, we know that the one who loved us enough to die for us holds tomorrow. So have your way, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Keep reading ahead and we'll see you, see you this weekend.